Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk about purpose with inspiring people making a positive impact with their lives. We are particularly interested in social enterprises and entrepreneurs. We will listen to them reflect on their journeys and take time to dig deeper in order to better understand what really motivates their choices. Well, hey everyone, welcome along to the show. I'm glad you could join me as we're going to be speaking with Oliver Hunt, who's the founder of MedSav. And this is an amazing venture which takes medical devices and cleans them so that they can be reused rather than simply sending them to landfill. And we have a great conversation about what he's doing and why. Here's an excerpt from our conversation. Actually, most people in hospitals who are, as a patient, um, don't see single-use devices because they're either, either um, under anesthetics when they're getting used um, or, or for other reasons. It, it means that companies can get away with a lot more because it's not necessarily in the public spotlight. Mm-hmm. And there are definitely instances of, um, well, there's well-documented instances of companies driving the single-useness of their devices mm-hmm. um, by, for example, putting in microchips that will fry catheters uh, once they're used so that they can't be reprocessed. Mm. Um, that, that's one example. Or just in the early days, there were examples of uh, manufacturers supplying devices, and there was two, two devices, um, and they were two blades, exactly the same blade, but they were in different packaging, and one was given with instructions for cleaning, and the other one was given in packaging that said single use. Mm. And that was... Um, sort of manufacturers seeing that on the back of epidemics like AIDS and HPV and things in the in the late 80s, early 90s, it was a good time to convenience and infection control were, the, mm. were um, key drivers for hospitals. Well, just before we dive into this conversation with Oliver, I'd really appreciate it if you do enjoy this episode, consider checking out some of the earlier ones as well and telling your friends about it. And the aim here is to develop an ecosystem full of stories so that we can learn from each other. Because ultimately, I think story is the best way to communicate what it is that's important and why it is that we do what we do. Now let's jump into this conversation with Oliver. So it's a pleasure to welcome Oliver Hunt, who's the founder of MedSouth. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me on. Um, so you've listened to this show, which is really nice. Uh, you kind of know the format. Um, one, one of the things we do is go back to the start of people's lives and find out a bit about them. And I'm really interested in what you're doing now and the mm-hmm. business that you've started and uh, what your plans are for the future. But can we just rewind to the beginning of your life and tell us a bit about where you're from? Uh, so I'm, we're in Christchurch and I'm from Christchurch. I've lived here for the vast majority of my life. I live, um, well, a bicycle ride from here. Um, that's how I got here today. And I went to school uh, in, in Christchurch, just down the road from here, actually. And um, I then went to university at the University of Canterbury, where I've, I got a uh, degree in mechanical engineering and then followed that up with a Masters of Engineering and Management. Um, not the sexiest name, but uh, the MEM. So were there hints of that in your childhood? Like, is that, like if you go back to when you're, you know, very young, six or seven or something, mm-hmm. were you into similar things? Or I always made things. I was always in the garage building um, things, um, whether it was out of wood or metal or a whole bunch of things. Um, and I've always been quite, I suppose, mechanically minded is, is a term mm-hmm. um, I've, I've heard. And then I was, I actually at one point I was really, really interested in being a doctor. My uncle's a, a surgeon and so I was really keen to be an orthopedic surgeon um, for quite some time. Mm. What what age was that? Um, probably from sort of intermediate, so what's that, like first or second form through to maybe fifth form was when like that kind of died off Mm -hmm. for me yeah but i mean that's kind of a but the medical background was there sort of yeah well my my mother my family's um (laughs) sort of infested with doctors um (laughs) not that it's a bad thing but my mother's mother and her father were both general practitioners and then uh, mum's an endocrinologist my her brother is an orthopedic surgeon my auntie um, was a physiotherapist, uh, and so there's there's, there's a fair so bit there was of, a bit of a family legacy there, huh? 
yeah um but none of like neither me nor my brother or sister are studying to be um doctors or being doctors so um we'll see where that goes mm. maybe nowhere <laughs> <laughs> but what you're doing now does have connections right so mm. yeah yeah so with the with medself where um we're helping hospitals be more sustainable by taking what would usually go to landfill and that is single-use medical devices and reprocessing it so that hospitals can use it again and um so that so we take it off the hospitals we clean it check that it still works and we give it back to the hospitals for a lower price and we keep doing that until we can't do it any longer at which point um we break the devices down into components that can be recycled mm. where possible well let's talk about how you got into that in a, in a couple minutes but i'm just curious still back you know in your childhood or early years like what sort of things did you enjoy you were always in the garage building things is that a good summary or yeah yeah well i mean i've always enjoyed sport and uh one sport that i've done for a long time now is skied and um mm. there was a bit of a craze of what they call dry slope skiing um so you basically ski down to some astroturf and then do like a, a rail or a um some of the terrain park features you might find on a ski field. Right. Um, and I built a dry slope that could be moved around the garden um, when I was sort of year 19 with a few friends, um, including, so that, that was kind of hands-on, pretty big, mm -hmm. um, pretty heavy. How big are we talking? Like a couple of meters high? Or? Yeah, it was like a couple of meters high with a bit of um, coping that I'd found in a skip down the road and it, we'd, we'd plugged a hose into it and that was like the coping and the irrigation for the the astroturf so i was always um doing things like that um okay i've kind of continued that on built things like um a bike rack for my car which takes a ridiculous amount of bikes um but it's been proved very useful um and did that at university and things like that um so what what do you think gave you that mindset like why do you do that this is a good question. I've always sort of looked at things and thought, like, that's definitely doable. Mm -hmm. And in some cases, like, for example, the bike rack, looked at something that was on the market and gone, well, actually, that one's not really that well designed. Yeah. We can do a better version. And this can only take four bikes. Surely we could make one for 10. Yeah. I mean, your average car's got five seats. So, you know. Yeah. But, I mean. No, you, I hear you. I, I think a bigger bike rack, that's but maybe also, your second business venture. <laughs> yeah, 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 maybe. Um, but just, just seeing things that weren't so well made and thinking, well, we can just do it properly and then it'll be better and actually will will last. And, you know, you can use it for 10 years rather than three and you snap some bit or lose a bit of it because it's not. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think my mates get sick of me talking about it, though. Right. Have you, have you heard Why? Because you're always... Um, have you heard, boys, I made this bike rack? No. <laughs> Don't bring up the bike rack again. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> that sort of thing. But yeah. All, all good. Yeah. Fun. So what happened to the um, the dry slope? Is it still around or has it been <laughs> disassembled? Um, I think my parents got a little bit tired of having it, so we disassembled it. And, right. Um, <laughs> I don't think we got much value out of it once we took it apart. Um, but, no, it was fun while we had it. Yeah. So. That was good, and a few of my mates had them around the um, actually around the city. So that was that, that was one thing that I can point out. Um, but yeah, that was kind of a natural fit for mechanical engineering, just be building things. I, um, I did like shop at school, so metal shop and a little bit of wood, but not so much um, as metal. Mm. And so mechanical engineering was a, a natural fit there, and it, it complemented like mm, science and, and maths, which mm. I was always all right at. Mm. So yeah. So you kind of knew coming to the end of high school that that was the area that you wanted to study? or? Yeah, well, uh, I did. And I, I kind of had given up on the idea of going and doing medical because it didn't seem like it was quite as fun as I had once been. But, uh, yeah, it was interesting. I had, you know, you parent-teacher interviews at, at school. Mm -hmm. And um, I went to one of them and my mother told the teacher what i was planning on doing once i left school and he laughed and he said he'll never do it and i said, well i've got two of those degrees now so you <laughs> <laughs> why do you think he had said that um i wouldn't say i was possible i, I probably would um <laughs> i probably didn't work as hard as i could have at high school sure <laughs> um yeah which was probably a conscious choice rather than like 
just being lazy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so maybe that, but, you know, it's always good to have haters. Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess it's funny, you know, when you think back on life, though, sometimes those little comments then spur you on to do whatever the person said you couldn't do. Mm. Well, one of my good friends who was, at, who was the um, sort of worked very hard the whole way through school, he said to me, you should write a letter back and tell that particular teacher that, you know, it was that that spurned me to do this to get to where I am now. It's not true, but it would be fine letter. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so, that's yeah. good. So, yeah. But, yeah. So um, I guess talk us through your university time then and, and what you particularly were focusing on or enjoying. Um, so I went to the halls, um, even though I live in Canterbury or lived in Canterbury, I moved away from home and went to the halls, which was a great decision and I would recommend it to anyone. Um, and met a bunch of people that did similar things to me, skiing. Um, I, I met a couple of guys in the first week um, at O-Week events who I've skied with and been friends with ever since. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then a bunch of other people from different areas of New Zealand, which was really cool. Um, and then... Uh, so what do you love about skiing? It's come up a couple of times already. Uh, so. so skiing, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Well, I, at one stage I wanted to be a pro skier when I was at school, but you know I looked into it and it was like you know life wasn't really what I wanted. But um, as opposed to every other sport that I had played, which was sort of tennis and um, soccer and cricket a wee bit, but I found cricket a bit slow for me. You can kind of go anywhere with skiing, you know, mm-hmm. as long as it's a mountain and there's white snow on it. Um, so that that I found really cool, mm-hmm. and so I've since taken up mountain biking and surfing, which have kind of got a similar aspect to them. And then, mm-hmm. um, so it was the freedom that appealed to you, sort of. Yeah, go where the, you want. It's the freedom, I think, mm-hmm. um, and you're not constrained by you know a time mm-hmm. time limit or anything like that. Yeah, either. Yeah, I, I I love skiing as well. And when I was 21, I moved to Japan and worked at a ski resort there, and um, I just. Remember, I was in a hotel, so you basically, you know, vacuuming and making beds and doing all that stuff. But then the other half of the day, you'd be given a ski pass and you could go. And and so when I would go up in the mornings and I would potentially be the first one at the top of the hill, you know, and just looking down and there's just, it's all clear and there's nobody Mm. there. And that moment of just starting down, it's really thrill. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, well, it's uh, yeah. I, I, you're making me think of my brother who's currently working at a, a bar, a restaurant in Revelstoke, which is in Canada. Right. Um, it's called the Village Idiot, Village Idiot, which I find quite fitting. But um, you know, he's doing the same thing, um, so mm. that's quite cool. But yeah, so the guys that I met at uni um, through skiing, we went one of them and no, two of them, and another guy from Auckland went to Japan for three weeks at the end of first year uni which was pretty cool right and so like that was that was one highlight of the early university mm-hmm. so yeah yeah that's great and i guess just talk us through then because when did you start realizing the entrepreneurial type of thinking or you know because what you've done is started a company right so talk us through your journey there in terms of being a student working at your studies and then when this idea came about and the transition i've always kind of been interested in in business and also interested in in companies and ones that have been successful i find reading um, biographies or autobiographies quite interesting i mean Mm. but also the attitude that i had to things um where i talked earlier about the the bike rack looking at it and saying well there's a problem there Mm -hmm. it's not quite as good as it could be that sort of naturally leads you to finding like opportunities for businesses mm-hmm. um, or social enterprises if you like um, in, in some some places and so that kind of spurred it on I always looked at opportunities um, but with the vast majority you sort of do a little bit of digging or if you like due diligence and, and find out that there's not really an opportunity there as big as you think or and, right. and the sooner you can find that out the better because you don't spend your time waste your time right um, but like being yeah. a professional skier, right? Maybe it's not as good as it sounded. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it, it depends. It depends what you want out of it, because there's certainly friends of mine who are, and they love it. And um, it's you know, everyone's got their kind of personal goals. Mm. Yeah. So in terms of so your entrepreneurial, I guess 
you, you were interested in businesses and people who'd made them a success from fairly early on? Yeah, I kind of uh, paid attention at university. We have a, a, the entrepreneurship club and they sort of, they would bring speakers in. And so Tim Jones, um, mm-hmm. who was a speaker uh, or, or a, um, on your podcast, probably second episode, I think. Yeah, that's right. Um, he, he came and gave a speech there, which was really interesting. And he talked a bit about purpose, which is something. Probably inspired you all, right? Yeah, uh, well, I, th- I found it quite an interesting speech because it was a, one of the things Tim said was um, it's better to do something that you're passionate about from day dot rather than go and earn lots of money doing something else and then start doing something that you're passionate about, which was funny because right. he also had an anecdote, which was these people who they go and get this job in a big, you know, big company and they get their money and then they go and that they want and then they go and do their sort of social good and there was this guy standing in front of us and he was the only one wearing a suit and I'm kind of going this is ironic because Tim would have been maybe 30 um, at that point and, but it was interesting because it, it, it kind of dovetailed quite well into what I know now about the medical industry because Tim of course was a mm. at one point a medical device um, sales rep mm. so he talked a bit about that and what what drives that kind of engine yeah and if people are interested, then you're right. It was episode number two of the podcast. So he he was actually one of the like the original people that I interviewed that um, mm. I just had heard a bit of his story and I wanted to know more. Yeah. So he goes into all of that as you know, turning his back on that. Yeah, and that's right. And that was and it would have been the the formulations of that story probably four or five four years ago now. Yeah, when it, when I heard him talking, and now he's and that was when the B Corp bring that B B Corp mm. movement to New Zealand was was really just starting. So now. He's he's going quite well with it, I understand, and they've got quite a number of companies doing it. Yeah, um, yeah. He's just done a national tour, I think, of um, New Zealand promoting it and things. Yeah, yeah. We, yeah I have a lot of time for Tim. He's become a great friend, and he was actually on the podcast a second time, interviewing another guest, or actually just having a conversation, a guy named Mark Ambundo from Africa, and so they have a whole hour of talking about their different perspectives. So, yeah. So let's come back to MedSav and like, how did that get started? So this, this sounds cheesy, but it's actually what happened. Um, I needed a project for my Masters of Engineering and Management, and typically they're an industry-sponsored project, and they pay a student sort of a, a graduate wage over four or five months mm-hmm. to do a project for their company, and, and it's typically something that's improving a process or something that they wouldn't usually do, but now they've got this help that's kind of cheap-ish they'll do yeah um and i was going to do it for a local company but they didn't and they're in the medical field um which fitted quite well or fit quite well with a a previous summer scholarship that i'd done and Mm. um finding out the properties of trabecular metal which is the metal that goes on hip implants so i'd done that and this company Mm. um uses some of the research they've done or, or facets of it anyway they didn't really have enough money to pay me and so i was like well hmm I, it's a lot to do pro bono, uh, especially for a student. And so I was actually at my uncle's house, the surgeon, and it was about three days before the election last year, so 2017, and we were discussing healthcare. And my question to him was, what happens if we spend more money on healthcare? And he said, well, it doesn't really, words to the effect of, it doesn't really matter how much we spend on healthcare, it's the efficiencies in the system. And then um, he proceeded to show me all these devices that were out the back in his garage, which were single use, but they were unused because the packaging had expired. And so he, he thought that there would be a way of sterilizing them, which there would be, um, and then getting them back to the hospitals. But it, I mean, it's not just so simple as putting them through a gamma radiator, which I obviously did not have because it's a $300,000 plus piece of equipment. Right. Um, <laughs> And, and then just you know trolleying them through the door of the hospital and saying here use them on the next patient, um, but it, it kind of started with the the wheels turning and, and some mm. did, did some research created a literature review because that was what was required for the the um, project and then went from there and. So did you realize after that conversation with your uncle, like as you're driving home or whatever, like that was that was significant. Like, because it's now become quite a huge part of your life, right? Mm, well, there's only about a th- four-minute drive from my uncle's house to my house, so right. probably wasn't <laughs> enough time to, to do that realisation. But um, it was probably the next day when I had talked to 
actually the guys at the company who I was going to get a um, the project with, who I, I still talk to them frequently. Um, that, 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 that there was actually a market for this in New Zealand and that mm-hmm. they'd looked at it in the past and there were other companies that had looked at it but they had failed um, and so that was when it, when it happened and I went and met um, pretty soon after with the people in the hospitals and, and looked at what they were using mm-hmm. and that's where that kind of mentality of alright well this is clearly a problem like we can we can figure out a way of doing this and there's actually if we can look at the pricings here we can save some money as well so right and then I did more and more research and found out about the industry and um, did all of the things that you sort of do when you're starting a business. Um, if you do it through the University of Centre for Entrepreneurship, who were fantastic and still are, um, like the customer validation and market segmentation, all that kind of fun stuff, yep. um, and figure out you know what's there and how you might go about it. But mm. also looking at um, companies that failed in the past and why they failed. Mm. And so that's kind of been a... Like I think it's best to make someone else's or like learn from someone else's mistakes rather than making your own mm-hmm. where possible. Mm-hmm. Um, so you mentioned UCE, um, University Center for Entrepreneurship. So were you doing the summer program there or something? Or Yeah, so I, I decided I was going to do this for my engineering management project. And then about two days later, I walked through the doors of the UCE and said to Michelle Panzer, who was the manager at the time, mm-hmm. uh, I'm going to do this. How can you help me? And she said, well, you can, you're a bit late, but you can apply for the summer program. And so, uh, I, I did that through email. That's fine. And then she said, you're probably not going to get the the funding that all the students get for, for this. So I was like, oh, that's okay. And then she emailed me three days before the program started, which was also the day of the Canterbury races, um, which I was going to and said, oh yeah, we've found funding for you because there's someone who's, um, decided to give some more money to the center hmm. which was good and bad because it was great um i was getting funding but also it was the day of the races so you know it was possible that that was going to go on the you know, on the ponies so anyway that didn't but yeah, good. <laughs> there was that possibility yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah of, of course <laughs> no a very very slim chance but i was pretty happy that day yeah yeah right so um so that's a summer long program yeah so it runs for um, from I actually know, but I'm just asking because people listening won't know. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I'm just um, fleshing it out a wee. But it's, it runs from about the 20th of November around about then through till sort of early February, mm-hmm. and students come into the program with their ideas um, for what a business could be, and then they put it through like all the starting points, like a, a lean canvas. And so this year's cohort are doing that at the moment, mm-hmm. um, and then and developing pitches and things like that. That's where they're at at the moment, and then kind of comes with the ultimate pitch at the end and for me that was to 260 odd um local business people um and i pitched last which was you know possibly fortuitous because um medsub won two of the five awards um people's choice and best opportunity Mm. um so no it was it's a really good program and um you get access to fantastic mentoring throughout it yeah oh that's great well it's good to have a plug-in for things that are positive in our world shameless plug (laughs) (laughs) no it's good so um because i think the first time i heard you speak was either at that event or at i think it was at greenhouse at ministry of awesome because you pitched there as well didn't you or Mm. and and i think that kind of theme has continued is is, uh, getting our message out Mm. has helped the business and getting it out in a, in a forum like that where we can actually answer questions because it's yeah for some people complicated and so if i'm me or someone else is there who fully understands it um that's better yeah uh, so just talk us through um what we're actually talking about like you talked about medical devices and things but in my mind it's kind of vague you know like when your uncle took you out the back maybe it's not the same things but what sort of things are we are mm-hmm. we talking about basically the in, in hospitals, you've got two types of um, devices. You've got, you've got reusable and you've got single-use devices. And so reusable devices are given to a hospital with instructions for cleaning. And then single-use devices are given to a hospital with no instructions for cleaning. And they range from sort of your needles and bandages all the way up to catheters and things like that. And so at the low end, there's really no business case for reprocessing because they're so cheap 
and uh, the the risks and the complexity of doing it mm. um, it's too high but in the sort of middle which is the devices that are maybe 20 to a hundred dollars through all the way up to thousand US dollars um, a pop that that's where single-use device reprocessing comes in mm-hmm. And so that's kind of filling the gap that's left when a manufacturer doesn't give a hospital the cleaning instructions right. in many cases. Um, and that means that we take the devices and we create that process and we validate that process. And importantly, we take all responsibility for the device when it goes back into a hospital. So we basically become the manufacturer of that device when it mm-hmm. goes on every subsequent use. Mm-hmm. Um, so that... <laughs> That's something that's really important in New Zealand because there had been instances where hospitals had been doing their own reprocessing of single-use devices, but it was done in a very um, unorthodox manner, perhaps, mm-hmm. or it was done in a way that didn't conform to any standard or have any qualification or verification mm-hmm. or validation or anything like that. So, um, yeah. So what's so what's actually going on here, like foundationally? Is it is it a symptom of society that we produce things that are only for single use, or is it a? And I'm not sure how much you can say here without being too controversial. But is it the companies themselves that are producing these single use devices? Because if you use it once, then you have to buy the next one from them. Well, I mean, it's interesting because in any other part of our society, um, and I'm I'm thinking towards single use plastic bags or drink bottles or even that cup. Mm-hmm. Um, People see what happens, but actually most people in hospitals who are, as a patient, um, don't see single-use devices because they're either either, um, under anaesthetics when they're getting used um, or or for other reasons. But it it means that companies can get away with a lot more because it's not necessarily in the public spotlight. Mm -hmm. And there are definitely instances of, um, well, there's well-documented instances of companies driving the single-useness of their devices mm-hmm. um, by, for example, putting in microchips that will fry catheters uh, once they're used so that they can't be reprocessed. Mm. Um, that, that's one example. Or just in the early days, there were examples of uh, manufacturers supplying devices, and there was two, two devices, um, and they were two blades, exactly the same blade, but they were in different packaging, and one was given with instructions for cleaning, and the other one was given in packaging that said single use. Mm. And that was um, sort of manufacturers seeing that on the back of epidemics like AIDS and HPV and things in the in the late 80s, early 90s, it was a good time to convenience and infection control were the mm. were um, key drivers for hospitals. Mm-hmm. So so you use it once, you throw it out, and the rationale is you want to avoid infection yeah, or really, whatever other it's reason. It's really easy. It comes in the door. You use it. You throw it out. Um, yeah. You don't have to worry about cleaning it. And there's, you don't have to worry about in- infections. But really, um, you spend a lot more money yeah. fundamentally. Yeah. And you know, given where reprocessing is today, the, the presence of those infections you know, is really a null argument. Mm. So yeah, that because it's kind of well, it's I've already said it sort of, but it's an inherent tension here, isn't it? Where you've got a, a business which is set up to sell a product, and of course it's better that they promote it as a single-use product because then you'll have to come back and buy a lot more yeah. from them. Well, from a manufacturer's point of view, if you sell ten of one thing, you make a lot more revenue than if you sell one of that thing and then the hospital cleans it nine times. Yeah. So um, that that's one angle on it. Mm-hmm. And so there's there's pushback from that, and we, I mean, we haven't seen that so much in New Zealand because we haven't been around that long, and we don't have that um, impact on the market. Mm. But because we're in touch with the the market in America, which is coming up on thirty years old, um, there's well documented instances when like the ones I've just quoted to you um, that have happened. Mm. Yeah. All right. So tell us a bit more in terms of the safety side of things, and like how do you clean products to a standard? Because, you know, if I go in and get an operation, I want to know that the stuff that's being used is is going to be as good as, I guess, a first-time mm. use device. So for the, the first thing is understanding um, the device. So 
for every device that we give back to a hospital, we have to understand everything that's in it as if we made it. Mm. So we've got to test and find out what kind of plastics and foams and things like that are in it, uh, or metals, or, or anything like that. So that's the first thing. And then the, then it's really having a process to segregate those devices that cannot be reprocessed, mm-hmm. and then uh, cleaning them. And, and it depends on what kind of device you use for, for the cleaning procedure, because a, a an invasive device that is going all the way up into your arteries is clearly treated in a different way to a non-invasive device. Mm-hmm. So that's, um, you might use a, a bunch of ultrasonic baths for a, a invasive catheter, and then you finally sterilize it using a specific type of sterilization. Mm-hmm. Um, but for a non-invasive device, you can treat it with high-level disinfection, as you might do for any non-invasive reusable device Mm. and then you have to function test it to make sure that it actually performs the medical function that it's meant to do as well Mm. so sure uh, and we have uh, very arduous processes even for some of the most simple devices that um, you know strictly follow and so we're working at the moment um, on ISO 13485 certification so that's like the quality management system that you'd see ISO 9001 for most other companies, but it's for medical. So it's got right. the foundation is 9001 plus all the risk components from medical devices. Mm. Yeah. Because I think you'd said earlier, ultimately you have to stand behind whatever has been done and, and it's as if it was the first time. Yeah. Well, we fundamentally become the manufacturer. So anything that was to go wrong with the device is that's on us. Um, and so we have to take the steps to prevent that from even being possible. Mm-hmm. Um, especially on the infection control side for the devices we we deal with yeah Yeah. so is it up and running now like in terms Mm. of devices that you're actually cleaning and things and how's it going so we're we're collecting from hospitals around the country and we're supplying back to some in Canterbury Mm -hmm. and the it's going really well we've had great feedback from all of the people involved in the Mm -hmm. process from the top down um, we spend a lot of time doing education with how to collect, how to collect in a way that's not going to infect staff or in how, the, how the, to maintain the device integrity so that mm. um, it looks good when it comes back to the hospital or we can actually release it. More importantly, we can actually give it back to the hospital. Mm. Um, so we do a lot of that. But um, no, it's, it's up and running. We've been really fortunate to receive some grants from um, local government and other parts of uh, government as well mm. and so ECAN supported us with some funding for our washer equipment and we've just got that in fact we've got a new one to be delivered today um, which is a big beast of a thing it's sort of a couple of hundred kilograms um, but no we've got really good support because I think in terms of timing of the, of the business or social enterprise as a whole we have kind of hit, hit, hit it right mm-hmm um, people can see the the need for it. Yeah, well, people seem to care a lot more about things mm. going to waste, and um, so they should, uh, mm. because we send a tremendous amount of waste away. Mm. I would like to know a lot more about how much waste we send away in our hospitals, because mm. when I was doing my research, a few figures stuck out to me, and this is way back last year. Um, and, and one of them was that in 2010... In America, which is obviously a different society to us, but still Western, um, hospitals were the second largest contributor to landfill behind the food uh, industry, food mm-hmm. and beverage industry. And then the other one was that for New Zealand, 97% of our medical equipment is imported. Mm-hmm. So that means that we're importing a huge number of single use medical devices mm-hmm. and then we're sending them to landfill after one stop at a hospital. Mm-hmm. And particularly the numbers that you used, you know, like if these things could be worth a couple hundred dollars. Yeah. So it's incredibly, you know, I'm just running through my own mind. It seems very inefficient to buy something for $500, use it once, throw it away, mm. buy another one, throw it away, mm. um, if, oh. if there's an alternative. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, if you can, and, and typically for a reprocessed product, you aim to get that back at about half the price, the list price. That's mm-hmm. sort of the where we're targeting we're offering we're servicing a smaller market here in new zealand by quite a 
well by one seventieth of the size right. of, of America. So, you know, it's it's difficult to get it right down quickly, mm. especially considering our age um, as a company, which is actually as of today a year and two year two days. But right. um, yeah, like it, given the numbers that they they have in America of savings, we think at the high end, New Zealand stands to save a hundred million dollars per annum hmm. on a per hospital bed basis. So it's worth exploring. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, let's just take the conversation in in an interesting way, which is you said our business slash social enterprise. So talk to me about the social enterprise elements of it. And is that a label that you've been adopting or is it something you will adopt in the future? What's your understanding of that? Because as you know, that's a real area of interest to me. Um, Mm. So I'm just curious on your own reflections, having been in the entrepreneurial startup scene the last year and, you know, with your startup, like, because some of the words that you're using, you know, recycling, saving money, um, health benefits, like these are all Mm. emotional things because we all know people who are in hospital or will have problems. So, Mm. yeah. So, um, yeah, well, the social enterprise one is a difficult one because uh, I've been, I mean, we were both at the social enterprise breakfast and it's it's difficult Mm. to know what exactly a social enterprise is. But Mm. um, if you take it as a business that does good, then we fit the bill quite well because just by operating, we directly reduce the number of devices sent to landfill mm-hmm. and we directly reduce the expenditure on healthcare mm. from the public and private healthcare system. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I really like that about um, our organisation, if we're not going to put a label on it like that, um, yeah. because it, it, while there are a lot of social enterprises that donate their profits to a cause or something like that, mm. um, I, I like the fact that we actually are doing it while we operate the business. It's not like right. we, you know, work five days doing this and then we do, you know, two days of doing something yeah, else. Yeah, you're not making money by selling something to get profits to then give away to someone who does the good thing. Yeah. You're actually doing good through the business model and through mm-hmm. what you're doing, right? And we pay tax as well, so like that's always good. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yep. um, so, yeah. So is it something that you, you feel like I, I hear what you're saying and sort of the the culture of what you're starting mm. certainly seems to fit within that. Do you think it's a label that you'll adopt going forward or or you're happy with how it's being used? Or? I think um, part of it is because we don't want to confuse people. Right. And the fact that our business model is, is somewhat unconventional, especially mm-hmm. in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. And so um, we don't want to confuse people on that. And then a lot of the people we deal with wouldn't know what a social enterprise yeah. necessarily means. Yeah. Um, and I'm thinking people in hospitals mainly. Yeah, sure. Um, but I think if it's clearly understood and there's a good framework for it, then it's something that we would definitely explore. Mm. So if let's just put it out there. Like if, if there was a way for you to opt in to some sort of a certification slash, you know, label um, and that involves prioritizing your mission over your profits is that the type of thing that would be of interest do you think or yeah I think so and I think I mean the, the thing there is that those things for us are linked mm-hmm. so if we make money we save money it's kind of a one-to-one ratio almost if you talk about right 50 percent of a, of a device right um, so that that one's interesting and I think in terms of certification you've got the likes of um, you know B Corp who we talked about and so that's something we're looking at but our priority at this stage is to focus on the ISO 13485 which yeah. is um, not a direct business like the, the overall business it's the business the manufacturing processes part mm. um, it's definitely going to tick a box for some people isn't it if you can get that and well in New Zealand we've got so in, in a hospital, you've got a sterile services department and they do the reusable equipment. They do, they follow the instructions and they clean that typically metal, mm-hmm. um, things like that. There's only one sterile services department in New Zealand that has 13485 certification and that's Auckland Hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, and so their sterile services manager was part of a hospital who was reprocessing when she was in, um, it, it was a United States hospital. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so she's said that she'll support us to get reprocessing in one of the biggest hospitals in the country mm. 
if we get ISO thirteen four oh five. I see. And yeah. so um that's a that's a fairly good accolade to mm. go for. Um so that's your focus for now. It makes sense. We've got a few focuses, but that's one of them. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Um Yeah. Well I'm just interested in your comment about uh that you don't want to confuse people as well, because that's the danger I think if if you do use the word social enterprise, all of a sudden people might not think that you're a profit-making business mm. because it's all about the purpose and things. And, and that's a conception I'm trying to dispel mm. is that you can, you can make money, you can make profits, you mm. can actually pay off your mortgage from the business that you started mm. that does good. And I'd, I'd love to see a time when we've moved away from these, the term social enterprise because, mm. of course, businesses, all businesses, you know, are prioritizing their purpose and their mission that, that does give back in some way. Mm. And, and it's sort of, it's, it's really interesting because when you go there, you go, well, how, how, you know, how is a business not doing good? At least in someone's eyes, because someone's got to be buying something off the business. Mm -hmm. And so it's got to be a value to them and therefore at some level good. But I mean, it, it, it all depends on um, mm. what the perception of good is. Um, whether it's just lots and lots of money and there are definitely businesses out there that that's their sole goal. Yeah. Well, um, traditionally, you know, like going back to the 80s and the greed is good type of mentality mm. of how much profit can we make, how much, what's the shareholder getting? Well, the shareholder really just wants money. Mm. So how can we make more money to pass back? Oh, I know. Let's do single-use medical devices, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> There's a lot of profit there. So it's, um, it's trying to get... Because ultimately, it's getting below the the words, and it's getting to the foundational concepts of mm. we're humans, and we should care about each other. You know, mm. it sounds cliche, but mm. it's actually fundamental like that. Yeah, I think for us though, the thing is, if we look after our customers and we do the right thing and we provide them a good service, yeah, as well as doing what we fundamentally are doing with the reprocessing, then. Um, it, it's not so much of an issue what we call ourselves. Yeah, um, as you'll be successful because it, it yeah. will meet a need. Yeah, yeah. which it, ultimately is what you have to do as a business. Right? Yeah. You've <laughs> right, exactly. What's so. the need here? So I know you were in the states relatively recently, right, at a mm. conference and things like yeah. how you, you mentioned it's sort of more advanced in other parts of the world. Like, what's the conversation going on around this? It, it feels like in New Zealand maybe it's a new type of topic, but it sounds like it's yeah. What are they so, talking about there? Um, in the United States, the reprocessing of single-use medical devices has been a, a common, or a somewhat common, since the the mid '90s. Mm -hmm. So it is really approaching 30 years old. And the meeting I went to was the organisation that is basically the trade organisation for all medical device reprocessors. Okay. And so all of the big companies that were uh, were there, and except for one, which is owned by. Johnson and Johnson, and has now pulled back from that organisation, hmm. um, and no one really knows why. <laughs> um, but basically, a lot of the conversation was about um, how the regulation influences things, hmm. um, and also how they can communicate the value that they are bringing to the customer, and how how reprocessors can, and how that can be communicated to regulatory bodies because. Um, medical device manufacturers, and so they're the make, they make the single uses devices, mm. uh, spend an enormous amount of money on lobbying. And so in, in America, I believe it was about $64 million mm. last year, mm -hmm. US, which is 100 million New Zealand a year. That's, a, that's what we could potentially save. Um, but, <clears throat> but how does a small industry get a government to allow what they're doing. And so we've seen problems with that in other countries that have reprocessing right. where there's mixed messages coming from regulators and that really doesn't help anyone in the, in the market. Um, there's a mm. lack of clarity really does. Mm. But So you were heartened by the meetings though in, in terms of what's going on? and Well, yeah, and, and probably even more so by I visited one of the facilities and the, the processing capacity and capability they have there is quite phenomenal. Right. Um, the reverse engineering and the way they treat devices, they use 100% hmm. pure water, which is um, will can cause you considerable discomfort, they say, if you drink it because it's got no nutrients or minerals in it. Hmm. Um, and so it will pull those out of you. Um, and, and they use that to clean devices because it's the best solvent they can. It goes through... So that was one 
um, pretty pretty crazy highlight of, yeah. of that. It's pretty nerdy, but I mean, yeah. That's what but it's it must have been encouraging to know that there's businesses that are successful that are doing this. You know what you're doing here. So well, in America, it's a two billion dollar industry annually. So yeah. some of the businesses at the table, um, fairly considerable. Yeah. In in their size and volume. Yeah, that's big numbers. <laughs> and and what was their reaction to your being there? Like, it was oh, this person from New Zealand? It must have been a novelty or. Well, they did ask a wee bit about how long the flight was, but um, no, I think they were. They just welcomed you in. They, yeah, they welcomed they welcomed us, um, and it was just understanding what's happening around the world mm. for them. I think um, America's got so many people that they've got a big enough problem that they're solving mm-hmm. in many places there, but they they do want to know about how you know the technology is being applied elsewhere. And, yeah. So that was quite interesting. Yeah, oh, that's good. Well, I get a sense of what the business's purpose is and, and what you're seeking to you know, solve as a problem. How about for you personally? Like, how does this fit in with your own, your own life? You know, you're, you've finished university and this is your first real big venture, I guess. And that word purpose, where does it fit for you? Well, um, I, I think it fits in with and the business, fits what I want to do quite well because... Um, not to go back to it too much, but as a skier, I quite like the fact that we've still got snow in the mountains and I'd like to keep that there. Mm-hmm. And so we are indirectly reducing the amount of g- greenhouse gases because every time you make a device, you, uh, you emit a lot more than we use. Mm-hmm. Uh, we emit when we reprocess them, for one. And then um, on the other side, actually being in the business, I'm learning a lot every day mm. I mean this is a new experience for me for example but mm. um, the, every every day learning meeting new people learning how to do different things um, trying as hard as possible not to be fighting fires all the time mm. and actually just doing the, the things that matter yeah um, so yeah that, that's why I, what I really enjoy about it um, and and maybe if we can get it to the level that I want it to be um, I look at something else Mm. And, and, and maybe this decade mm-hmm. who knows <laughs> yeah sure so what oh, sorry next decade maybe yeah <laughs> 2018 right? there's only a few yeah, yeah, two years. another year left yeah. <laughs> um in in terms of your entrepreneurial journey then you know you've mentioned that you've read lots of books and things and but for you what have you learned in the last year that that listeners might be interested in or or be able to learn from you mm. now this is a difficult this is a difficult one because when I wrote my master's report, I got criticised for not coming up with anything that was really profound and new. Considering that I'd been doing a startup for about five months, I thought that was a pretty tall order. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think focus. Yeah, I'm a big fan of what um, Jeff Bezos says, not because he's the richest man in the world, because I think it makes sense. And so that's where my comment about fighting fires comes from. Right. You know, better to work on the structural components of the business. Yeah. And so don't get distracted and by don't the get fires. Dist- you know, if you fight every email coming in as it comes in, you will never get anything done. And that's a mentality actually that's um, espoused by people like Drucker when he talks about his philosophy of doing stuff in big chunks. Mm-hmm. You know, set aside four hours at least to do a big chunk of work. Otherwise, you'll get nothing done. So I, I, I believe in that. Mm-hmm. Um, and also pay attention to your customers, which is kind of a fundamental. So two very um, simple things. And then the other one, which you know, probably gets said every time you have someone on, but be passionate. And, and I, I really am passionate about what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. I, I passionately think that it is a huge waste mm-hmm. um, sending single-use devices to waste. And I think it's a ridiculous proposition that people should be having to pay for them every time at the rates they have to pay. Yeah. Um, let alone the air miles to bring them over here or the, the freight. Yeah. So, yeah. So those. So believe in what you're doing, which comes back to what Tim Jones's advice was, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, and I found that a lot of, well, some people in my in my closer friend group have, have taken jobs and they don't necessarily think that they're quite what they want, but it means that you're working on something you don't. Mm. you're not getting anything out of so yeah yeah it's difficult because sometimes you just have to do you have to pay the rent right yeah. <laughs> you can't just do your passion project yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. Um, was there anything else that you wanted to cover or talk about in terms of MedSav and the future? Or? Mm, oh, well, <laughs> we've, yeah, we, it's been interesting because we've brought some um, employees and, and one of them in particular um, has fallen off his bike at the bike park. And so he he's obviously interested in mountain biking, which I am too, but he's fallen off his bike and he's now in... Um, he spent the majority of the week in hospital, so there's always, you know, the converse of having these advent- adventurous passions. <laughs> right. So he's doing um, field research into the devices, right? Yeah, we said, it, <laughs> we said it's market research, but it's... Uh, <laughs> and I did the same thing a, a few months ago, and so it's like, hang on, like, maybe I sh- we should get a few less mountain bikers on the team. Right, yeah. <laughs> get some good insurance anyway. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, anyway, shout out to Carl. I'm hoping he gets better soon. Yeah. Well, by the time this airs, you know, he'll probably have fully recovered and be back on his mountain bike. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> and, and back at work as well. And back at work, yeah. Welcome back. <laughs> well, it's been really fascinating to talk with you and just mm. hear about a bit of your journey and, um, yeah, just going a little bit deeper in terms of things that you've learned you know, as you're developing. And what I'll be really interested in is maybe, you know, in say a year from now to have you on again and see how the journey's gone because you're at the relatively early stages of, um, of what you're doing. So thanks very much for your time and coming on the show. Mm, thank you very much for having me. So Oliver, um, we recorded that interview back in December and since then um, some things have changed. So do you mind telling us and giving us a bit of an update? So MedSelves now 18 months old. It was 12 months old at the time we recorded. Um, we've since re- received some additional support from both Auckland Council and more recently the Sustainable Initiatives Fund or SIFT to uh, develop our impact further mm-hmm. and that's helped us maintain a relationship with the university here which I've uh, actually just been at um, supporting an R&D project with a bunch of students and also some master's students in a different project and um, we're collectively keeping about 25% of the population healthy in a more sustainable way now through um, some public and private hospitals across uh, both islands of the country. All right, well, thanks for coming back in to uh, record this little additional bit. Really positive to hear that things are changing, and um, we're recording this on Friday, May the 9th, and my plan is to release it next week. So um, we'll be watching and seeing what, what the rest of the year holds for you. Well, I do hope you enjoyed that conversation with Oliver. I know for me, several things stood out, and just the way that he's approaching this venture has so much potential to give back and also just reduce what is probably an unnecessarily high overhead for our health system. It will be interesting to watch his progress and see how he gets on. If you enjoyed this episode, then consider checking out some of the almost 100 other episodes in the back catalog. Until next time. (music)